To start, I would like to acknowledge that we are situated on the land of the Mississauga and traditional territory covered by the Williams Treaties. Chimigwich and Nawekokowa to the Mississauga, Pototomi and Mohawks for caring for this territory. Welcome to Pints and Politics. What is Pints in Politics? This will be episode number 107. We explore all things political with a focus on life in Peterborough, Ontario, and Canada. Since March of 2020, we've been gathering uh, online for these discussions. The discussion to which you're about to listen was recorded last Saturday, June 26, 2021. Joining me today for this online discussion is our guest Canada Day panel. First up, we have Peterborough City Councillor Stephen Wright. Then editor of Transition Town's Green Zine and activist Cheryl Lyon. Mom and community connector Yvonne Lay. Then we have a legal professional and comedian Jill Tilly. And closing out, we have math teacher and playwright Tim Etherington. So thanks for joining me for this. Now, this being Canada Day, the question comes up, of course, where are you from? What does it mean for you to live in Canada? What do we really mean when we say I am Canadian? Or do we even use those words? Maybe a better question is, what is it like to live in Canada these days? Of course, your answers will depend on who you are. On a legal level, except for those of us on the panel who are not citizens, all the rest of us could say, should we choose to answer, I am Canadian. Or are we? If you are Indigenous, what do you say? The Inuit MP represent Nunavut, Mumalak Kakak, in explaining why she is choosing not to run again in the next election, said in referring to her work in the House of Commons in Ottawa, I do not belong here. Do you feel you belong here? Where do you stand? If you live here but were born in another country and have ties of the heart to that country, what do you say? Now, I was born here, my parents were born here, but my grandparents on my mother's side were born in Ireland and England. They immigrated to Canada in 1908, settled in Montreal. So although I refer to myself as Canadian and travel on a Canadian passport, I am a settler. I have never been to Ireland. So if a heckler ever yelled at me, go back to where you came from, I would shrug and say, okay, I'll go back to Montreal. If we say I am Canadian, like Joseph in the Bible, we immediately put on an identity. We put on Jacob's coat of many colors. There would be colors that we might be proud of. Then there would be colors of which we might be deeply ashamed or deeply angry. Over the past few months, some of these shameful colors have been on full display to the world. Most of us have known about the brutality of the Indian residential school system, but have chosen to look away. The discovery of unmarked children's graves at three of these former schools, there were 139 such schools across the country, can no longer be ignored. According to Murray Sinclair, former chief of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there may be thousands of unmarked graves yet to be found. Overriding this, uh, the relationship between settlers and indigenous people is the fact that for those of us who are settlers in Canada, there is the reluctant realization that we're living on stolen land. How do we address this? Uh, The prejudice and racial tension we So often, when I say we, I mean Canadians, maybe settler Canadians, uh, so often smugly project onto our American neighbors, can no longer be ignored in the wake of these unmarked school graves. Then, less than a month ago, 
There was the intentional slaughter of a Muslim family in London, Ontario. Slavery is part of our history, but most of us choose not to look at that either. Racism is very much still with us, but many deny it, including some of our premiers. Many choose not to talk about it. And yet, there's so much to be grateful for. Canada still has, is still one of the most desirable destinations on earth for refugees fleeing oppression. We have a functioning democracy, albeit far from perfect. Our economy is comparatively sound. We have a publicly funded health care, again, far from perfect. We have a tattered social safety net, badly in need of repair, but far better than nothing. There, have been, there has been no attack on our borders since the Fenian raids of 1866-1871. We are blessed with an abundance of natural resources and wilderness. We are a relatively prosperous society, even as we keep in Indigenous people in remote corners of the country living in crowded shacks and without safe drinking water. So uh, finally, just a word about this panel. There are, by choice, no Indigenous people with us today. We are settlers or immigrants. Why? Isn't this exclusion an act of discrimination? On the contrary, it's an act of respect. To explain, during Meritarian's June 13th video discussion on Instagram Live about First Nations relations with Canada, one of the guests, Ron McLester, who is Anita, uh, one of the Iroquois Six Nations, made the point that he is tired of being asked to explain the Indigenous viewpoint to non-Indigenous audiences. To me, he was saying that he is tired of being asked to help non-Indigenous people deal with their guilt concerning the residential schools, the 60s scoop, and the entire sad history. No more hand-holding. In so many words, he was urging non-Indigenous people to step up and take responsibility for our roles in this relationship. Um, of course, this relation, we're going to talk about the whole of the experience of uh, living with this thing called Canadian identity, which includes the relationship with the Indigenous people, but embraces other things as well. So to my first question, what is this experience of living in Canada like for you? Do you feel you belong here? Yes. Okay. This is Jill. This is Jill. Okay. I emigrated to Canada in 2009 from the United States. Right. And, you know, you hear about uh, violence towards immigrants here. And there would be an argument that those people don't belong here. They don't carry our values. But nobody, even when they find out I'm a immigrant, I've never had any kind of racism directed towards me because I'm a white person. And the arguments against immigration are completely based in racism here. It has nothing to do with not wanting to let people in. And so I've always felt like I belong here because I've never been treated differently. And even to some degree when I've explained that I'm an immigrant, it's almost a novelty as opposed to a negative. I've seen other people who come into a store who, you know, present as different or have an accent or, or don't have English as their first language, immediately get an eye roll or treated differently. And so there's a lot of racism I've seen in that. Yeah. By the way, I should have mentioned uh, at the outset before we started recording that uh, those Jill voluntarily shared that she, she wasn't born here you, you certainly don't have to do that i mean that's that's your business your call so just to put that on the table so another question is how do you feel about this country especially today july 1st canada day 2021 
This is Tim. I, I don't know if that's an easy question to answer. <laughs> I think we, we're going to approach it from, from a whole bunch of different perspectives. Your, your previous question, so sort of where you come from, and I, um, you know, I think I very much experience in, in my upbringing, my family history, that this, this paradox of Canada. I am literally descended from settlers. You know, my mom's family were pioneers in Cavan on the 11th line. 200 years ago this summer, actually, Irish immigrants oh. showed up, started chopping down trees. And my father's family goes back seven generations to uh, late 1700s, uh, somewhere near the Toronto airport, and then fizzles away. We, we actually don't know. Family legend is we may have come up from the States. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I guess I qualify by that horrific Stephen Harper term as old stock. Um, yes. You know, but so I, I don't actually know. I mean, my, my mom's family was educated, so we actually know where they're from in Ireland and there's some history. My dad's family weren't literate for uh, until around the turn of the last century. So I have no idea, you know, in, in the Etherington yeah. family, we know nothing but Canada. So, yeah, I mean, I identify and actually know nothing but Ontario even. So, you know, I, I identify with that. Yet at the same time, um, it's not an abstract thing. My ancestors came here and took land that was native land, started chopping down trees, you know. So both those extremes exist where I can claim an agency based on my family history if I was a monster and wanted to do that. Uh, at the same time, how do I account and do I take responsibilities for things that happened seven, eight generations ago? Yes, yes, that, that is that is a tough one, of course. How do you sort I mean... As a Quebec Anglophone growing up in Montreal, Canada Day was always sort of a uh, go to the country, uh, go on a canoe trip, uh, you know, go long bike ride. It was not a big deal because the big deal in Quebec and Montreal, of course, Jean-Baptiste Day, uh, the week before. Uh, we just had the experience of that a few days ago. Uh, big celebration, lots of public events, at least not during non-pandemic times. Canada Day, on the other hand, for me, was more or less a non-event in Quebec. It looks like Stephen wants to speak. <laughs> you saw my lips moving. Uh, I, I missed the question because my uh, cell signal died, but I got uh, the gist of it when you started speaking as to, you know, you know, how do we identify? Are we Canadian? Uh, you know, the importance of Canada Day, I, I, if I'm on the right trend. Oh, Okay. You know, for me, I identify as being Canadian. Uh, you know, right. although I was born in Jamaica, oddly enough, my children who are first generation Canadian identify themselves as being Jamaican. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are oftentimes I keep reminding my youngest daughter that Scarborough General Hospital does not exist anywhere in Jamaica. It's just down the road from Peterborough. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, I, I, you know, I, I do recall, uh, you know, you know, the Stephen Harper's bill that would have seen uh, immigrants or citizens deported back to their countries of birth in the event of any major criminal activity. And mm-hmm. I would say to my kids, you know, they could kick me out, but where are they going to send you? You are truly Canadian. And, and for our family, you're the first generation of yeah, Canadians. Yeah. So one grandchild who's now established us as having a second generation uh, right. immigrants, you know, and celebrating Canada Day for us, for me uh, in particular, trying to get my kids to understand their country, uh, you know, meant taking them to Ottawa 
as right. often as we could and say, well, you know, here's where you celebrate. And last few celebrations in Ottawa, you know, they've seen the makeup of the diversity of Canada and all the cultural aspects of it. So it was very important for them to get that element. It's right. Interesting. I, I think Yvonne is pointing at me. Um, uh, thank okay. you, Yvonne. Two questions. Do I feel like I belong here? Yes, I've only ever lived here. Uh, yep. and, and Stephen knows this because I surprised him once by saying my grandmother came from Jamaica. And uh, so what would have happened to me, you know, if nationality were handed down or, or Stephen Harper's law came in or whatever, you know. But I really um, have never lived anywhere else. I've traveled and spent some time elsewhere, but this is home. So uh, I feel like I belong here. So okay. Because I was born here, but more complexly, because I'm in the dominant culture here. You, excuse me? I'm in the dominant culture here, and of course it's easier to feel like you belong when you are in the dominant right. culture. Right. And to the second question, how do I feel now about Canada? I feel sick and ashamed, and, and, and yet I feel like we're on the cusp of being able to make something real about this country. And and it's not just with Indigenous people, but that is our top-of-mind thing. Right now, on the eve of this Canada Day, and, and it has to be dealt with. And I, I like to think that um, our nationality depends, and, and perhaps I'll speak more about this if, if the opportunity comes up in the conversation, it depends on getting to know where you live. And, mm. and, and the easiest place to get to know is right around you in your local vicinity. And yep. to me, that's a start. So I'll, I'll leave that there and, and hand it off to Yvonne. Thanks for the opportunity. So I will identify that I'm not a citizen of Canada. I am a permanent resident because I'm not allowed to hold dual citizenship. So for some people, that makes a difference. So I am a citizen of Singapore. All my family is in Singapore. I have no family here. So to your question about whether I belong here, this is a question I have been asking myself for the last 13 years, having arrived in Peter, an international student, um, and right. then transitioning on to becoming a permanent resident, and then to having children who are Canadian citizens. I think belongingness doesn't come necessarily with a national identity. And I think for me, I identify it with the relationships that I build here, especially because I have chosen family in Canada as opposed to biological family ties. So just with regards to personal events, I ask myself now, now that I have a choice between Canada and Singapore, should I give my children that choice as well between Canada and Singapore and expose them equally to both cultures so that they can make the choice for themselves to figure out where it is that they belong? Yeah, because I look the way I do, I feel when people ask, where are you from? They're not really asking me if I'm from Peterborough. Um, yeah. There is, I think, a, um, a viral uh, skit on, on social media about where yes. are you really yeah. from? And someone asking, where, yes. where are you really yeah. from? Which part, which part of Asia are you from? And, and then making that, that connection. Because um, you didn't look oh. like me, <laughs> is, the, is the code, I think, in quotations. No, exactly. You don't look like me. With regards to celebrating Canada Day, I think through my work, what I have um, realized is that for newcomers who come, uh, newcomers to Canada, Canada Day 
in Peterborough, especially because it's a multicultural celebration, is a real chance for them to share their culture proudly with everybody and to say we are part of the fabric of this community, just like yep. you are, and also an invitation to join in and to participate. Um, yes. There's always, always been this kind of discomfort with the fact that our current prosperity is on the backs of Indigenous people. And this is the year, I think, that we really cannot ignore that. And we really must reckon as a nation, and given this opportunity to reflect on how we want to go ahead, um, that I think that's the symbolism of this Canada Day for me. Yvonne, as you, as you were talking, a, a tangent came to mind, and so I will be wicked and spit it out. As, as a teenager, age 15, uh, I was a Boy Scout, uh, and... Uh, managed to be selected to attend a world jamboree which is a big meeting of boy scouts and this one was in the philippines and so it was the first time in my life i have i was in a public setting where and i grew up in montreal uh no there there there's a small uh afro-canadian community uh black community in montreal there's a very small uh, Chinese community, but, you know, predominantly Quebecois and Anglophones, uh, white people. And when I was in the Philippines, it was the first time I was in an environment where no one looked like me. And I, I have to say, it's something you have to experience as opposed to verbalize about. It wasn't threatening. It wasn't intimidating. People were very welcoming. But I remember being struck to the center of my 15-year-old core that, Wow, this is really different. And, uh, you know, those of us who live here, who have never traveled outside of here, can't really hear what you're saying in a way because they've never had that experience. It is so different. Um, which brings us to Canada Day. Uh, what should happen on Canada Day? What, what did happen today in Canada Day 2021? And what should happen? I, I, I'd like to, obviously, because of recent events, you know, it, it, it should encourage us to treat Canada Day as, as, as a time of reflection right. and, and, and assessment and for very good reasons. However, I've, I've actually always had an issue with Canada Day um, <laughs> and not because I despise this nation of my birth or anything. But you know, a sense of being, a sense of identity is really about the stories we tell ourselves. It's about the narratives yes. that we construct around ourselves. and. Yeah. And we have this abhorrence as humans to have open-ended stories, not to have simple Aristotelian beginning, middle, and end, protagonist, conflict, resolution, so forth. And so the story that we keep trying to force ourselves with Canada is that Canada is a peace-loving nation that believes in compromise and muddles its way in a kind of shambolic fashion to some decent outcome. And, you know, it, a scrutiny, scrutiny of our history uh, means it doesn't bear up. Like, and, and, it, and it, it, again, you don't flip right over and say, well, everything Canada has done is terrible, right? We're all hypocrites. But when you mentioned about, because preparing for today, I was thinking about my experiences being abroad and, 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 and two very quick things. I'm talking once in, uh, in the UAE with a, uh, an engineer from Egypt. And at that time I was living in Toronto and I said I was from Toronto and he said, oh my God, and he spoke so eloquently about Toronto, but the, the story he, he said was he had been there once, he'd been on a subway, 
And he started listing all the different religions and ethnicities that he could detect on the subway, which a person from that part of the world is much more sensitive to the nuances than I am. And he said, and do you know what they were doing? He said, they were bored. They were staring out the window. They were doing crossword puzzles. They were nodding off. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. So, you know, <laughs> Mark one for Canada, I felt very good about myself. Later in that same travel, I was in uh, Amman, Jordan, up in the Temple of Hercules, the highest mountain in Amman. And this guy named Ibrahim approached me. And uh, he was just a guy trying to hustle some extra cash, give it to our guides. And so I, I declined. But we got talking. This is in the late 90s. So we came to the Persian Gulf War. And he was talking about the difficulty of being Jordanian and dealing with neighbors of Israel and Iraq. And he was speaking about, as despicable as Saddam Hussein was, how the regular citizens of Iraq had, had suffered. And he went on to say things negative about the United States. And I said to him, well, yeah, but I mean, it wasn't just the States. I mean, Canada bombed Baghdad too. And there was this pause. And he looked up, looked at me and said, thank you. Because he was a shrewd guy. He knew how to hustle tourists. And he knew what Canadians wanted to hear is that we were a peace-loving country with these wonderful yes. people. And he was trying to butter me up for good yeah. reason, you know? And, and, but when I said, come on, man, like, you know, we like to say this, but our yes. CF-18s bombed citizens, civilians as well. And he thanked me for being honest, you know, because, but he knew what Canada, Canadians wanted to think about themselves. Yes. And I think that's where we run into these tensions where we snap back and forth between polarities where we, we recognize, and we've known this for a long time and recent events have amplified it the horrific and continually horrific treatment of the native population, let alone systemic racism that exists all through Canada. But we want to throw back the good part of Canada and somehow say it's got to be one or the other, and it isn't. So Canada yeah. should be a time of reflection. I think yeah. also I've had discussions with people being American where they'll say, oh, America's not taking in enough refugees, and I absolutely agree with that. But I think something that Canadians miss is that Part of the reason refugees need to come here is because we've had a part in destabilizing those parts of the world yes. that have caused these people to need to flee. You know, Correct. like a lot of the people that come here from the Middle East, Africa, are all escaping governments that are essentially created due to colonialism. You know, you know Tim, uh, Tim made a, a good point there about uh, this Canada Day being a day, uh, a year in which we should reflect, not just a day. It, it, you know, ironically, the news... Uh, lately of the uh, discovered bodies of our indigenous brethren has been disturbing. I mean, Canada does have uh, somewhat of a troubled past. You know, it wasn't until I was actually in second year university that I actually learned about Africville, you know, all through university studies. And we never knew because, you know, and you're right, Tim, when you talk about the narrative that we try to form around our Canadian identity is all on the positive. And there's nothing wrong with identifying, recognizing our history, uh, the things that were wrong, but looking at how we correct and rectify some of those things of the past. Because even when we talk about, say, the Underground Railroad and Canada's involvement in, in, in slavery, you know, we, we, our history doesn't really speak well to the fact that we did have slaves in Canada as okay. well. You know, yeah. we took an entire established community of freed slaves from the U.S. and demolished the community, you know, somewhat devastating that economic development that was happening with that community on the East Coast to build a bridge. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, and part of our history, again, you know, not learning this until well after university was the connection between freed slaves and the indigenous population. 
you know, the story of Josiah Hansen. I, I can't recall a time where that was in any history uh, class at all. But these are yes. stories that we need to actually learn the history of. We weren't yeah. the generation responsible for the atrocities, but we are the generation to correct a lot of it. And as uh, I think it was Ron McLester said on uh, that uh, that interview with uh, Dan Terrian, he said, "You may speaking to uh, second, third generation settlers from Europe, saying you you didn't you weren't involved in these atrocities in the pres- in the residential schools. You didn't set them up, but you've sure benefited." Yeah, absolutely. And a penny dropped for me on that. There's so much in what you're saying, Stephen. I mean, and I am not about to do, well, I'm not doing the typical Canadian thing of pointing at the Americans, but uh, it, and I'm ashamed to admit, you know, here I am, you know, many decades after university, and I didn't know about Tulsa mm-hmm. until last, well, a year ago. Like, how did that happen? Um, and, and, I'm American. I didn't know about it. Yeah. We all have examples of our own country, right? I'd like to pick up on the uh, sure. this historical uh, piece we're on here. I think that the notion of a single Canadian identity is really crumbling. Um, and it's been given a real hard push by the recent discoveries in Canada and elsewhere. And it, it's crumbling away gladly from the sort of white British capitalist classist male Christian characteristics, you know, all, yeah. all of that that monolith of, of that we were fed in our history. Uh, but it brought us residential schools and it brought us reserves. And all, me, it, brought it brought us residential schools and reserves. That yes. that thing. So that that is crumbling right before our eyes. So we yeah. can't ignore that history because it's been shown that countries that uh, became more advanced like Canada more sophisticated and, and more powerful. And we only have to think of past history, the Roman Empire or Nazi Germany. And they, history historians are now seeing, increasingly distanced themselves from their history. And they became more and more prone to abuses of power and to dictatorship yep. and to significantly very rapid decline. We all know about yep. the fall of the Roman Empire. But when they began to deny their origins and deny that they were oppressors and all of that, they began their rapid decline. And and I think the biggest challenge to our our identity, if you ask different Canadians, it might be a little different, but we'll go with the majority narrative that we've got in front of us. But I think the biggest challenges to that narrative now um, comes from our First Nations and also um, the, the murder of the Muslim family in in yep. London, and yep. growing awareness of racism. And right. I think one of the things that, if we look back in a few years on our history, another challenge is climate emergency. That will change our identity, and that's almost a whole other program. So, the, oh, so, <laughs> so we, we, I think these challenges immediately before us now can guide us towards whatever this new Canadian identity is that's arising. And there's a whole other way of looking looking at that, too. I, I, I started by talking about our local identity, get to know your place. Well, we mm-hmm. kind of have this nebulous notion of Canada as, you know, big and mountains and lakes and plains and Newfoundland, you know. And 
And I've spent enough time there to, to, to say, yes, Newfoundland. Um, <laughs> that, uh, that we have to start looking at that in bring it down to the local level and say, do I love this place? Um, and the land here and the trees here and the forests and the water. And I think that message is powerfully being given to us through Indigenous people who never, ever lost the connection to land, have a nebulous connection to a concept of a country or nice postery pictures. They have a connection to the land and what it is to live here. And if each of us in this vastly disparate groupings of people in this huge geography and get to love where you are, even mm-hmm. if you emigrate to Montreal or you come from Jamaica or whatever, learn where you are, learn the geography, learn what nature teaches you, because ultimately nature will determine. I would encourage to, if, if, if you know, because what we're talking about is of deconstructing Canadian identity and, and, and our yes. history that, that, that we received. And, and uh, I think it would be a mistake just again to react to current events and, and think that's what we need to do, you know, because the, the, the sort of, construction of a Canadian identity has been going on for 200 years. And, you know, I mean, remember we were originally constituted as a dominion, which was a brand new name for a nation. And it was born from the Bible with this idea that we had dominion over these lands, which connects to what Cheryl was saying. There's a, there's a plaque in the center of London, Ontario, in uh, Victoria Park, right in the center of London. And it recognizes that that park was actually uh, a, a British garrison in the middle of the 19th century. And it's oh. the most incredible plaque because it's about how the British garrison came in 1840 and established themselves and the town grew up around it. There's no mention that the British garrison in 1840 was an occupying, sorry, 1839, sorry, was an occupying army after the rebellion. Sorry, it's 1838. Sorry, I'm getting my dates wrong. It was after the 1837 rebellion. They sent British regulars to London because we don't even recognize, we think of the rebellions of that era as just being a couple drunks outside of Montgomery's Tavern. There was a very strong reformist movement in uh, southwestern Ontario led by a guy named Dr. Charles Duncan uh, from London. And they sent the garrison there and they started hanging people at Thomas Talbot's Scottish fort that he had built at the Fork of the Thames until the citizens of London rose up and demanded they stop killing people. And there's nothing on the plaque about that. It's this idea that everyone waved the Union Jack and the army came and set up and they were an occupying army. Um, yes. And so we've been doing this ever since we've been around. We seem so interested and we seem to have locked into this identity of being the good guys. Yes. Of being, of being the reasonable people in the room. And until we just drop that, then we won't constantly be in conflict with some very, very ugly truths about this yep. nation. Things that we've come to realize recently and things that have been there for hundreds of years. I mean, you, you know, we, we all learned if we if we went to school in an English school, we all learned about the First World War, even in university. I took some history in university. The First World War is the establishment of Canadian identity. That's in the curriculum, right? Oh, yeah. Talk to someone in Quebec how they feel about the First World War. And a very, very different definition of what the First World War means and their shared history. My major yeah. in my major at university was Canadian history, and I learned practically nothing about First Nations. And outside, we have a plaque here in Peterborough, and I've started the process with the uh, Ministry of Tourism, who's responsible for provincial plaques, by inquiring how you get a plaque changed. And it's outside of St. Peter's Church. 
at the recent placing of shoes on the steps of the church, I was in front of the plaque and it was a moment of, of enlightenment really, because it celebrates like the plaque in London, the Robinson settlement of 1829 here, 1826. And that right. was just one big land steal. And right. that began the, uh, the, the uh, horror of what happened to the people here of Curve Lake and uh, to Alderville and, uh, uh, and Hiawatha. Uh, Hiawatha. And yeah. I, I, I almost don't want to use those names because it's such a, a painful reminder. Um, but if we could honor or change that plaque and say, uh, yeah, the Robinson Settlement and, and that's, you know, like the one, the way that uh, Tim, Tim was suggesting, we should, we should do that at least. Yeah, and I, I wrote. Uh, I wrote also to the bishop to say, "Can you look into this and and start this process? It would be an act of of recognition, reconciliation, and atonement." We're also developing some kind of a new language, aren't we, to describe ourselves as Canadians. We're just at the beginning of this. Uh, we can't say what we used to say. At least that's how I feel, you know. Uh, someone in France uh, uh, said uh, to a friend of mine who was traveling there when he found out that he was Canadian, said, Ah, oh, Canada, l'espoir du monde, the hope of the world. Oh. <laughs> yes. <cringe>. Yes, yes. <laughs> I just want to throw in here quickly uh, just about plaques. Most most remarkable thing plaque I've ever seen was actually a wounded knee on a road trip when I was much younger, just basically driving through the Black Hills and stumbled upon it and didn't realize until I got there where I was on the Pine Bridges Reserve. And there was a large wooden plaque there on the ridge above where the natives were slaughtered, a wounded knee. And it it uh, it was a government plaque, but it was in wood. And it had been edited over the years by members of the Pine, of Pine Ridges Reserve, carving out edits into it. And the one that I remember the most was they were talking about, you know, fearing that the natives were armed. And someone with a knife had scratched over that saying they weren't effing armed. Oh, uh, there you go. Get your big black marker out, Tim, and go around to that sign in front of St. Peter's. I wanted to ask you something about the immigrant experience. Now, Canada needs immigration in order to keep growing. The economy needs more uh, immigration, more participants, more people to work, more people to consume. So for those of us who have moved to Canada from elsewhere, what has your experience been? I mean, has it been of a hospitable country? Have you been made to feel welcome? Or will you forever be treated as an outsider? Now, I mean, we heard a bit earlier in the program about that, but what has this immigration experience been like? Because... We uh, settler Canadians tell themselves one thing, but just like most people haven't had the experience I had of being in the Philippines. So people of my background, uh, European heritage Canadians, haven't had the experience of arriving somewhere new where you're not like everyone else and everyone else is different from you. What has that been like? I'll be honest. I don't. um, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Right. Where we had hockey and Tim Hortons and poutine. And well, <laughs> you know, 
my I'm I'm not a Canadian citizen. I never I've opted not to get Canadian citizenship, even though it's an option for me. It just hasn't happened. But it's been fine. Like I, it's funny. My husband's from Newfoundland, and I say him moving to Ontario was a much bigger culture shock than it was for me coming from Buffalo. So when people talk right. about the immigrant experience, I don't really feel like I've, you know, had that. You know, the hardest thing for me has been like tiny little things. The culture of the U.S. and Canada, even though Canada would like to believe it's not, is extraordinarily similar, you know. Yes. So, yeah. so for me, yeah, I've always felt welcome. It's always been fine. But I recognize that is a great deal of, of white privilege happening there. You know, it's in, it's interesting, uh, Bill, because when our family first came to Canada, as, as you probably know, we started off in New Brunswick. And right. I, I remember mom saying the reason she felt it was necessary for us to leave New Brunswick was that she didn't feel comfortable there. Uh, you know, our first experience was when the little child came to her and said the chocolate color ladies come in to get her. And it was funny that after all of these years, because our family's now been in Canada now for well over 40 years, uh, I, I, I finally understood the reference to the chocolate color lady because of the chocolate river. And I never knew what it was. And it was recently my, my granddaughter asked a question, why did we end up in Canada? And I said, you know what? I don't really know the history uh, you know, I know because when I when we got here, I was only six years old, and, and and for me, you know, I always felt included until you start looking back and realize, well, geez, I wasn't included. I was pretty much excluded, and, and then for my mother to shy us uh, shun us away from that experience of ex- exclusion, she cleaned houses, worked really hard, mm-hmm. uh, cleaning office buildings made sure there was enough money to send me and my sister to a private school so that we couldn't actually experience what she was experiencing on a daily basis. Wow. That exclusion was there. She said, no, you were going to provide you the opportunity. So nobody right. look at you any differently. You know, you wore the suit to school. You, yep. you, you made the statements. I went to a private school and then people will look at you with a little bit more respect and say, well, okay, you belong. I'll jump in here. Um, having a math teacher on, on the panel, I just realized that it's been 23 years since I've been here, not 13. Uh, but uh, my my first day in Peterborough, having landed from Camp Kawartha in Peterborough, I was told to go home to effing China. And that was my experience of being in Peterborough 23 years ago. Um, but I would say that, you know, in many ways, even though I look different like Jill, I check many boxes for being an ideal immigrant, right? I read, write, and speak English well. Uh, I'm a contributing member of society. I volunteer. I engage. Um, and I think the experience is very different if you don't check those boxes. So, Yvonne, if, if, would it be okay if I asked with everything? There's been a huge uptake in Asian hate crimes. Have you found any thing more difficult for you since COVID or... No, and I, I would say that, you know, as a in a position in a position of privilege, you know, being where I work and, and the networks that I have in the community, I think I've been insulated from that a little bit. Um, but I would say that um, I have heard uh, of negative experiences in the stores where people have had, you know, remarks uttered 
under their breath or even directly at other people. So yes, that I think has been has been something that we've all grappled with. Yeah. Peterborough today, though, I would say Peterborough today is a lot different than the Peterborough 23 years ago. International students were almost gawked at, like, oh, you know, up the, up, up the street. And now you have, you're able to enjoy cuisine, you're able to likely have contact with someone who is from a different country. And I think maybe this is going back to Cheryl's point about loving local. This is our local experience in that to be, um, for someone to be, uh, connected to a network of people who will approach um, approach you with empathy is much more likely in Peterborough than in uh, a metropolitan area. Maybe I'm generalizing since I haven't lived in a metropolitan area, but I feel that this has been a real privilege of being able to connect um, here in Peterborough. It's all about relationships, isn't it, Yvonne? Yeah. Uh, and and the first the first teacher of that is nature. And the best representatives of that teaching are Indigenous communities all over the world. It's about relating to who you are with, building community connections, and living close to the nature of where you are, as if you possible live from the land. But our economic system has pushed us so far off the land that that's impossible. So that's why maybe many of us are getting to gardening. But... Maybe that definition or, or identity of what it means to be Canadian should include somehow a notion of relationship. And um, I, I took a stab at it, Bill, because you challenged you challenged me with coming on this panel. If, if I were if I were to say what a Canadian citizen is in the future, perhaps it's it's a citizen who is in right relationship with their history, with their land, their local environment. Uh, and the many people originally here or those who came from other lands and that we share our lives in peace and respect. I, I have to say, Bill, that's a great definition of what a citizen is. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and agree even with uh, Yvonne's assessment. You know, Peterborough is different than it was 23 years ago. And then I guess uh, Yvonne, we would have been there about the same time. And oddly enough, when my daughter attended Trent University, the thing was to count black people. Right. Uh, you know, you'd see one and, and, you know, you could be driving down George Street. You have to pull over really fast, get their phone number and says, listen, come over for dinner on Sunday. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because it was such an odd thing. Uh, you know, yeah, the first yeah. time I ran in even to say Ron Lay and realized that he owned the Kia dealership, it was, it was a shock. It was like, and he says, well, yeah, he says, I've been here since I'm 19 years old. I said, wow, in Peterborough, the standing job for the longest time, was there any other black people living up there? And I said, yeah, they live next door. Because realistically, Charmin Mungabe lived right next door. But that was, that was, you know, that was it. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Charmin Mugabe. But now you see, and I, and I got to say, credits to Trent and to Fleming for breaking down and helping us create the identity because now you see diversity. I walk in my neighborhood and it's amazing to what it looks like today versus what it looked like 23 years ago. And, you know, sure, you're right. The relationships that we're now building, people are having a greater understanding of who individuals are and removing some of those stereotypes. As you were talking, Stephen, I had the reflection that I remarked not, not a few days ago to David Tuff on Twitter that uh, 
we were talking about history, and I had to confess that as an elementary school student, public schools in, in Montreal, 50s and 60s, I learned a white history of Canada, right? I mean, I heard the name Louis Riel. I knew he was hung. I didn't really dig deep on that. So I guess as a go-forward question, what can we do differently, A, so our history has more hues to it. Other people's histories are woven in there. It's not just, as you were saying, the, the British, you know, free enterprise, capitalist, solely male vision of what happened in the past. How can it be more, how can we get a more inclusive view of our history, particularly in the schools? Um, well, to inject slight politics, the first thing we, we could have done is not canceled the new Indigenous curriculum like the Ford government did a couple of years ago. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's, and, and that's really what it comes down to. Nationalism is, is, is a kind of violence in, in, in terms of human relations, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, to try to, to put on a jersey and proclaim your dominion over, over a certain territory and then implied yeah. in that is a kind of superiority. And then you get into a completely ridiculous and potentially violent argument about who is better. And that then ignores, you know, what actually constitutes the citizens, the residents of, of a country. I mean, Canada is an artificial nation. You know, it, we were, yes. and, and I, I said at the beginning of the program, my family history, particularly my father's side, I don't know anything but Canada dissolved yes. somewhere a couple hundred years ago outside of Toronto. And, but, but that doesn't, but it still doesn't make anything about me to be more Canadian than anybody else, you know? Yes. I was flipping around and I can't find it, so I apologize for not having the title of the poem, but I'm thinking of, of a poem by Milton Acorn where, where he talks about it and goes through the stuff and acknowledges it, you know, and, and uh, about about being Canadian. And the, the quote that I was searching for was, you know, his that the Canadian history is his response is a, is a terse, not done yet, you know, and, and that. <laughs> Any attempt to try to package this thing, which is what Canada Day is about. It's about selling us a product yeah. of Canada, a version of Canada that we all have to buy in. Whereas we are here, we have our borders, you know, we, we, we've decided to be residents, to become citizens of this place. It should be an opportunity to have a really good conversation about what we want, not who we are. Because trying to establish who we are as, as, in a unified way is never going to work. I think uh, there's a danger in having a, an idea of a country that everybody buys into because that ignores the diversity of real life. And yes. it, ignores, it ignores a whole lot of things that I don't have to say. And, and it can become tyrannical. And uh, we only have to look to things like Nazism where there was one definition of being German. Um, so the history teaches us again a lot. And if, if like in, in, in nature, we, we live with diversity and we recognize uh, that my idea of where I live might be very different from yours, but I respect yours. Of the seven grandfather teachings, respect is often, yeah. you know, the big one. First respect and then you can, then you can love. And is there a piece in there about acknowledging past wrongs? Um, now, from what I've experienced, the Germans actually have been pretty good about acknowledging what went on during World War II, what happened, their role, and there's been quite an intergenerational conflict in Germany over that. Other nations, maybe Japan, maybe Turkey, not so much. And it just pains me to think that Canada is slipping into more of the latter realm of saying, well, let's let's not acknowledge the dirt we did and it'll go away. So, uh, I, and I understand, you know, it must be 
galling for First Nations people to to hear all this outpouring of shock and shame and guilt from settler Canadians because they've known it for literally over a century what went on in those schools and hid tried to keep their children from going to those schools and the really galling thing for me is and quote unquote uh, settler Canadians knew that too but we just sort of you know out of sight out of mind I just finished um, the paralegal program at Fleming last year and if you're in any of the law and justice departments, or if you're in any of the social work, mental health departments at school, you're required to take one class on Indigenous knowledge. It's basically like Indigenous Canada 101. And that's because of the overrepresentation of Indigenous people within social services and the yes. justice system. Yep. And it was amazing how many people from all different, whether you know, paralegal, police foundations, mental health, uh, were like, I don't understand why I have to take this. I don't understand why I have to do this. Or would argue back with the teachers about what really happened or, you know, hearing people say, like, residential schools weren't all bad, you know, and and, and even before we found bodies, you know, that we know. And so I think to give them somewhat of the benefit of the doubt, I think it is because they weren't brought up in their regular schooling with any kind of like critical race theory or any real understanding of what happened here. I mean, in the United States, we get some knowledge of what we've done, but it's all painted as like, but they're all great now, you know, when that's not true. And when I came to Canada, I didn't realize how bad it was for Indigenous people here because the United States also holds Canada up as being better than us when it comes to Indigenous rights and racism and in a lot of ways, Canada is better than the United States in some areas, but not acknowledging the wrongs that have been done. The reason, you know, we have kids who are 23, 24 years old who don't know and don't understand why it's important to know. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, Tim and I went to high school three or four kilometers from each other uh, in different decades back in Montreal. And I recall as as a teenager cycling down to the Lachine Massacre Monument. It's a large rock on Lakeshore Road in Lachine, uh, right near the Lachine Canal. Uh, and it's a monument to this massacre that happened in 1689 when Mohawk uh, warriors from the Six Nations came out. And they wiped out a, a village that was at the uh, head of the rapids. Several hundred people were killed. And there's a plaque to it. And so as a child, I learned about this and studied it and so on. Of course, it took several decades into adult life to realize there are no plaques for the uh, First Nation villages that were wiped out by the French and the British uh, in Quebec. One of the things that gives me hope, and I think it's just a little tip of an iceberg, is listening to the two Indigenous uh, programs on CBC Radio. Mm. And and that sends me to look for and listen for other things. And the the rising, the renaissance of of uh, indigenous consciousness and rights and, and history and everything that's taking place, perhaps out of sight of those who just read the examiner or something, you know, we should make an effort to go and find the good news. And and there's something powerful happening out there. I like to sort of stand back and look for flow and direction and pattern and see, you know, what's what's going on beyond my little bailiwick here. And I, I just sometimes get excited because the, the coming generations are, are they're getting it. 
they're not only getting it in their minds, they're getting it in their education, in spite of the cancellation of the Ontario curriculum. Uh, they're right. getting it in music and, and the arts, and they're getting it because of the internet, and they're getting it because there's some uh, extremely well-educated uh, Indigenous people who are now getting into positions of leadership and power. And it's really hard to stand back and see that picture, but I feel that something really good is growing. And whatever we can support in the way we vote or think or talk to our neighbors to support that and educate ourselves on it and push our pol politicians and, and locally and nationally uh, to to uh, pay attention and to incorporate that, that power. Well, we're winding down here as a way to summarize our thoughts. There's a few questions. I mean, we, we cannot undo what has been done. The past is in the past. But what can we do in the future? And when I say we, I mean everyone who lives here. What can we do in the future to change direction and improve how we grow together as we go forward, perhaps a, a, a part of that question is, what can we learn from reading the 94 recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? I mean, is there a path forward? I think we need to, as settlers, listen first, hear what Indigenous people are saying, and recognize their truth, and to raise up those voices and use our privilege where it's given to us to make positive change and to uh, inform others. You know, we hear a lot of things about cancel culture and uh, that's yeah. just, it. to me, it's, we have a culture, we should have a culture where there are consequences. You know, yeah. if you do something, you should be held responsible for it. And that's something that's very hard for people who have all the privilege and all the power to reconcile that they might lose some of it. And right. I think we have to be prepared to lose some of that power and cede it over to people who have none. It's funny, Joe, when I think about that, you know, clearly as someone who comes from a point of privilege and all that, what, what am I losing anyway? Like, really? No, no one's taking my house. No one's taking my pension. Like, yep. is it just, is it goes back that am I just losing a sense of myself that I don't want to recognize thinks myself superior to people sure. be, because of, skin pigment or religion or gender or something like that like really there's we're not losing anything right and obviously the flip side of that is what we embrace and this is the wager you know if we can say a positive thing about canada yes and starts you know there is an attempt to try to define ourselves as an ever-broadening circle of of, of of backgrounds and beliefs as troubled and as and as messed up and damaged as that attempt has been and that that's what we get for, for letting go of that sense of dominance, but it still sticks. And, and, you know, I said, there's, there's absolutely nothing to lose. <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. Right. 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 You, you know, to that, put to that point, Tim, you, you, you're, you're correct. There is nothing to lose. You'll find that ceding some of that power to the uh, groups that have not been able to sit at the table somehow secures even the things that you already have. So embracing that is is not to a detriment those groups that have been excluded are saying, well, we want the same opportunity. You have it. We want to have the same opportunity. So providing that space for them to have that opportunity means also protecting what you already have. Oh, I, I can't hardly add anything to, to what you've been saying. 
maybe on a, just a practical political note, walk around with a copy of the 94 recommendations of the TRC in your pocket in every election. Yes. And push and push and push for every single one of them. I was just going to add that um, I think it was uh, Senator Murray Sinclair who said education was what led us into this and education is what will lead us out of this. And that, um, you know, at, and I, I identified myself as a mom first, um, you know, to not be afraid to share these stories with children and to believe in their resilience as well as their potential to lead yes. us going forward, I think is what I'd like to share. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, we're wound down here. So, Stephen, Cheryl, Yvonne, Jill, and Tim, thank you so much for joining me on this panel discussion. You've been listening to Pints and Politics. We're a weekly discussion program about all things political. We post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on our Facebook page, Pints and Politics Podcast. We're also available on iTunes and Stitcher. If you have any reactions to what you've just heard or feedback on this program, or for that matter, any other program or topic suggestion, by all means, let me know. Email is best to bill.templeman, that's M-A-N, at gmail.com. So until next week, this is Bill Templeman. 